Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. Thanks for joining us for the first episode of 2023. And I'm delighted to say for this episode, we are joined by Eleanor Parker, who is she teaches Old and Middle English Literature at Brasenose College, Oxford, as well as being a columnist for History Today and many other publications. She's known online, especially on Twitter, for her blog, A Clerk of Oxford, and her recently published book, Winters in the World, A Journey Through the Anglo-Saxon Year, has been highly acclaimed, and I've seen it featured on many best books of the year lists recently. So it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for inviting me. I am thrilled to be able to have you on, especially for this first episode. Our listeners know uh, we start the year a little bit late with Risking Enchantment. We begin in February, which is kind of it's fitting given that we're probably going to talk about the different sorts of calendars and all of the different beginnings and, and ways of measuring time. But I still think it's a wonderful time of year to dive into this book. I mean, it works for any time. It's called Winters in the World. I read it in winter. It's great to start with winter, but it's also great to start at the start of the year, beginning of spring, and take the year as a as a whole and look at how we can kind of interact with the year with this particular perspective that you brought, which I just thought was wonderful. So maybe would you like to tell us a little bit about the book and the kind of era that it's talking about and what it's doing? Yeah, so essentially the structure of the book, I mean, as you said, the subtitle is A Journey Through the Anglo-Saxon Year. So it takes the year, you know, month by month or season by season, starting in the winter, um, because winter is the the season that's written about most Anglo-Saxon poetry, as I'm sure we'll talk about, and then going on through spring and summer and autumn, um, and kind of trying to link or trying to get a sense of what the Anglo-Saxon kind of experience of those kind of seasons could have been, how different people uh, responded to those seasons, felt them, how they were connected to things like religious festivals. Yeah, so in terms of like where this fits in historically, um, when we talk about Anglo-Saxon period, we're thinking about, um, you know, from the the 5th century up to the 11th century. So it's quite a long period of time in itself, actually. And one of the things that I was kind of thinking about in the book is, in a sense, there's not really one thing called the Anglo-Saxon year. It's, you know, that's like hundreds of years that were experienced by many, many people. And they probably all would have had their own experience of, of that passage of the seasons. So we can get a glimpse into the ways different kinds of people would have experienced the year and and felt about the seasons over that quite long period of of English history. Yeah, and I loved it. And I loved how you interwove a lot of the Anglo-Saxon poetry. Uh, As we we were just talking before, I also studied Anglo-Saxon literature and history at university. It was just my favorite thing to do ever. Um, And we have actually referenced you and your blog and your work on the podcast before. Speaking of the passage of time, I think it's coming up on three years, which is crazy. Um, But we did uh, an episode on uh, Anglo-Saxon poetry for the Easter Triduum and the Easter season in general. And I think I reached out to you then to let you know we were using your, your great translations of some of those poems and some of your work on your blog. And so it's really fun to see it kind of laid out in a full year's worth of, um, uh, of insight into the ways that you know, like you said, it's quite a long period of time. I feel like when people, when I say I study the Anglo-Saxons, 
they they think old England and they think maybe Shakespeare and you try it and say, no, try several hundred years, it's not a thousand years before that. This is this is quite a long way away. And I think it's easy when we're looking to the past to see, say, 300, 500 years as a small amount of time. Do we really think of 300 AD as that different to 800 AD? But if you were talking about it as a much closer timescale, we would see the huge difference between the 1800s and now or, or any of those kinds of disparities. So I think it is really important to highlight that this is a very different kind of society throughout even its own beginning and middle and end, mm. um, but that it was this great medieval time um, and it came in a lot of different formats um, and had a lot of different traditions in it, but that as someone who... Everyone who knows me knows I really bristle at the the kind of dark ages mentality, the kind of dismissal of the era. Um, and I think it really comes through at how rich the cultural society was and how much they have to offer us now. And the ways that they were a society and celebrated things together is just really fascinating. And I think something that is actually really needed today. One of the things I really love is the way that you highlighted some of the festivals and feast days and especially the religious feast days that have kind of fallen out of fallen out of our calendar to an extent i remember i think it was again near the start of lockdown you had a really great article in unheard which was about the sad loss of our common rituals which at the time was about how we couldn't come together at all because we were all separated through lockdowns but that in a much broader sense we've lost a lot of the ways that we come together as a society and as a community and how looking to the past and looking to these historical traditions is actually something that might be informative and inspirational for us now. Mm. Yeah, and I think, I mean, in that article, I was talking about Whitson, for instance, um, and this very long history of the Feast of, of Whitson, you know, that's the English name for Pentecost, um, which obviously has its roots in in one kind of culture, in a Christian festival, but then over the, the centuries adapted to be whatever people wanted it to be in terms of common festivity. You know, it was an occasion, it was in the summer, and it was a good time to, to get together and celebrate. So, almost it was an excuse for doing all kinds of things that people just wanted to do together to, to enjoy good weather and, you know, a time of year that's a good time for a holiday. So I think, you know, the, the thing about these festivals is they aren't static. They evolve over time and they can become what societies need them to be and they can change and adapt. Um, and I think there are certainly ways in which, even though these medieval festivals are in some ways, you know, really, really far away from us and it's a society that has little in common with ours in, in lots of ways, we can adapt some of these festivals for our own purposes too, or we can have our own versions of them. Um, there's no sense in which you need to just like either only mourn the loss of them and say, oh no, it was so wonderful when they existed, but well, we don't have that anymore, Never mind. There's opportunity to rediscover them, to recreate them, to make them what we want them to be um, because they aren't set in stone. Even in the medieval period, they were evolving and changing and developing over time. And um, you know what they've become today or what they could become today is like the latest stage in that development. Yeah, and I think I was struck with that. You also, in a similar time of year to Whitsun, mentioned in the book Rog Rogation Tide, is it? Which is, uh, you know, a season after Easter, but of a certain level of, of penitence. And um, it was a, a, a tradition of going on these processions and walks uh, uh, for, for penance. But it was... 
a communal and a lighthearted and not an overly solemn affair. Mm -hmm. And I think you were mentioning how over time that did change with the Reformation because it had been something with a lot of saints relics and a lot of, you know, more Catholic trappings. And obviously that changed after the Reformation, but that it still existed in a different form with um, the marking of the parish bounds and and having these communal times of, of, of communities to come together on you know in good weather and 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 come together for these these things that br- that unite us all such as like anyone who lives in Ireland or England we all talk about the weather so good weather is something that we do celebrate together it is something worth celebrating even as we've moved away from a more kind of agrarian and agricultural society that it still matters to us when the sun comes out yeah absolutely and it's still nice to have an opportunity to get together you know the thing about Rogation Tide and Whitson it's not just a time to get together with your own friends and your family and the people you see all the time it's a time to see your neighbours and your your wider Mm. community and have a sense of you know who we are as a parish or a town or a city or whatever um, and those kinds of other forms of belonging and other kinds of community um, it, you know it's often find, hard to find space for those I think in, in our society um, but that's something that's clearly made Regation Tide very popular and did allow it to survive in all these different forms even though you would think this was like the classic example of a festival that would be suppressed at the Reformation because you know processions and penance and saints relics like you say you know it's all kind of catholic and superstitious and from a reformation point of view but that sense of of a parish identity was something that was valuable people still wanted this opportunity to well what they did would like mark the boundaries of their parish um and you know acknowledge that themselves as a community and have some sense of a sort of shared experience in that way so that i mean i think these festivals can appeal to lots of different aspects of our social relationships um you know the most personal ones but also in a, in a broader sense you know kind of broader community relationships too yeah i often think back my brother used to work for quite a large company and towards the end of his time there they came up with this great idea which was that you would actually be free to take your bank holiday days on other days like just it would be more like a number that you could use whenever you wanted and I'm sure in on on first glance like a lot of people I do a lot of traveling myself you do look at that and say oh that means I could go traveling more I could go and spend the time the way that I want to if the if the May bank holiday means nothing to me then I can go spend that day whenever I want but I do actually think it's funny how that does dislocate us from doing things communally that um that as much as it is annoying because if you know you're trying to do something on a bank holiday and you think well everyone's off the beaches are going to be full the power parks are going to be a nightmare but there is something that i think is intrinsic to the way that we are supposed to live in communion with each other in a variety of ways like we mentioned like whether that's parishes or just neighbors or anything that if we strip away these common feast days even when they're just purely secular bank holidays that there is a kind of loss of a sense of community and as I would say from my own experience of many workplaces it often means that you just don't get those days that like it's almost like telling everyone that they have to be off guarantees that everyone is off because there's an expectation that you will take some time off whereas allowing yourself to just pick them in an individualistic way often just means that the work keeps getting put on your plate and you have to push off your plans and you don't know when to take your time. And it becomes this like agony of choice of, well, when is the best time to take this time that actually having these rhythms of the year, it is, it makes sense. Like it's the reason from a Christian point of view, we have a liturgical year that we have this, um, 
rhythm of the year that helps us not only find the rest that we need, but also to engage with the people around us because otherwise everyone is on their own little individual disc that they're not actually touching anybody else's time off and they're not kind of overlapping in any way that there's not one big time for everyone to celebrate. Hmm. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things I was also talking about then that Whitson article was the idea of the Sabbath, you know, this sense that you actually need a rest, that we are not meant to work seven days a week. You know, we are not productivity machines. We need yes. we need time off. And it's absolutely the case, like you say, that when that becomes optional, it becomes so easy for people to feel pressured to work all the time. Um, I mean, academics are terrible at this. They, they send their emails on like Christmas Eve and they expect a response. And, you know, that's not healthy. That isn't particularly, you know, conducive to um, a healthy state of mind or healthy attitude to work if you feel like there's no time that belongs to you and your interests and your hobbies and you know your your time for rest for for yourself um you know the pressure to work and to work constantly is always pushing against I think that our, our need for for rest and sabbath and and what that can give us individually and communally um so I think it's kind of worth like fighting for these <laughs> these these holidays these festivals because we need them. People value them. Um, they still have something to offer. There's not just like a nice add-on to life, but actually something which contributes to making a, a more healthy, a more overall kind of peaceful and um, and you know productive in a good sense kind of approach to life, which is not just about what you're producing, but doing so in a in a most um, effective way, I guess. Yeah, and I've been really thrilled, even in very small ways, to see some businesses or places reclaiming a Sabbath mentality and saying we're not going to open or even I did even see a couple of places not opening on Boxing Day or Stevens's Day this year for Christmas that like actually clawing back some of this time because as you said there's there's such a need for that rest and I think there's a, a, a multiplicity of ways that we can have celebrations as a community. And like, from my perspective, it's great to have religious ones, but I think there are also other ways to have a kind of pluralist society that has space for different kinds of coming together, but that that we have to almost reclaim it from the the commercialism because mm. that's just that's just another form of productivity that's yeah. just more put, putting money into the economy and also on the flip side once you have a sort of commercialist view of it then there has to be people to serve you in the shops there has to be people to run the shops from the from the other end to dis, even online to send out the packages to do all of the kind of manual labor behind it and so the more that things are based around just shopping or even going to specific events together that yeah there is a sense that somewhere along the line someone is missing out on this opportunity for for leisure and I think we're kind of it'll it's a a little while now but we're coming out of Christmas and I think you, you would probably agree with me that there's a real strain between if you do really value this kind of liturgical year between engaging in the Christmas that happens before Christmas now and the Christmas that should happen after Christmas yeah. <laughs> in Christmas time and Epiphany time rather than in in this sort of strange Advent. And I, I, I was really struck this year by talking to a few people how far away we've moved from understanding this year. I knew someone who said to me that they thought Advent was the 12 days of Christmas, that there was some yeah. 12 days before Christmas that was yeah. technically Advent. And you kind of think, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been really noticing that. I think that's a feature of just the past couple of years. And I think it's exactly what you're saying about commercialization, because 
apparently, you know, it, it offers a sort of um, a commercial opportunity to sell like a 12 days of Christmas, like a mini advent calendar some companies sell yeah. or social media companies make, you know, this is our 12 days of Christmas thing, but they do it in the run up to Christmas because that's when they want the most engagement. Um, so they're completely yeah. kind of shifting it to before Christmas because it serves their commercial purpose. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> there are forms of adaptation that are a little bit more troubling, I think. <laughs> Yeah. And that it's, it is so important. I love, and I've mentioned it a bunch of times. There's that quote that I always come back to from the screw tape letters where they're talking about how God has made by that union of change and permanence, which we call rhythm. He gives them the seasons, each season different yet every year, the same. Mm -hmm. So that spring always uh, felt as a novelty and yet always the recurrence of an immemorial theme. He gives them his church with a spiritual year. They change from a fast to a feast, but it is the same feast as before. Men will not only be contented but transported by the mixed novelty and familiarity of snowdrops this January, sunrise this morning and plum pudding this Christmas, (laughs) which I think is so beautiful because it does point to how even when we have this kind of issue with the commercialism, it is speaking to the fact that people really want to engage in some kind of rhythm of a year, that there is a sense of a, a place and a time for everything and especially in an increasingly like secular society and also in a, in a, in an increase of different faiths that it is it is wonderful to get that sense of rhythm that we're all going through together that it is one of the few things that still kind of unites us in some way that we're all going through and obviously we've got southern hemisphere <laughs> maybe shaking their fists at us right now but that for many of us that it, that it is a communal experience and i just think there's so much to be said for taking a more holistic view of the the experience of the year. And one of the things that I love is the way that you integrated both the the poetry of the Anglo-Saxons along with the religious and the agricultural and the different active seasons of the year, that they're all tied together, that they used poetry to understand this, the natural world around them, which informed them about the seasons, which also told them something liturgical, that all of these things were working together, which I think is something that at least myself, I really kind of yearn for when I'm looking at the year ahead, that there is a sort of integrated sense in which we can look to literature as well as what's happening in churches and parishes, as well as what's happening in the nature around us. And it all informs this into this kind of great symphony that is the year. Mm. I think it gives shape, doesn't it, to our own experience of time. And obviously, everybody's individual pattern of work or life or whatever is is individual and is very different. And yet there are these things that we can sort of share, we can recognise, not just with each other, with our own contemporaries, but with, you know, people from hundreds and hundreds of years ago, Um, that sense of, yeah, like, you know, the snowdrops in January or something, when the snowdrops come, there are certain emotions that most people are going to feel at that moment in the year, you know, passing through the cycles of, um, you know, longer days and shorter days, or good weather, bad weather, all that kind of thing, which is going to affect your experiences, the things that you do, the way you feel at particular times of year. Those are very relatable kinds of experience, I think. Um, And one of the things I was really hoping to do in the book was get a sense of how that felt for people in Anglo-Saxon England in ways that are similar to us but also maybe some different ways as well um but just to, to have a sense of that diversity of experience and how human beings interact with the seasons in their lives how those seasons give shape to our lives give meaning to what we are doing as creatures just living through time absolutely and i love how you begin with with winter and this idea of um 
uh, there is a line from one of the poems of fettered with frost mm. that, that winter has this enclosed feeling this kind of bound feeling as well as just being darker and colder and more uncomfortable but there is this almost like chained feeling that then you point out becomes this sort of flood literally often in spring but that there is a a more effusive and often uh, one of the things I really loved in the book was where you pointed out that I think we often associate spring with like like snowdrops (laughs) and lambs and you you were pointing out this is the month of mud this is the month of floods and wind and kind of noise um that it was actually in some ways quite a turbulent time because it's it takes a lot of energy to move from the the fetters of frost into the abundance of the summertime and so thinking of spring is this both you know more optimistic time but also this time where there's a lot of um kind of big emotions in some way Mm. Yeah, that's one of the things I find really interesting. I mean, I think the pattern of the Anglo-Saxon year, there are some ways in which their their ways of seeing the seasons are kind of effectively, we can recognise, you know, they take winter very seriously um, and they sort of, kind of see it as a real threat and talk a lot about the threat of winter. And I mean, it's not quite the same for us because we live in, a, in, you know, we have central heating, so it's not quite the same. Um, but their approach to, to spring is really very different, um, just as their approach to autumn is very different. It actually doesn't have much in common with with the way we see spring. I mean, it, you know, there are some elements of, of similarity, in, like I was saying about the kind of hopefulness or that sense of, oh, you know, new growth, new life, all of that. But yeah, um, that sense that after the imprisonment of winter, everything kind of runs free again. The the waters are sort of surging. There's like a, a giant thaw is how they tend to imagine it. And that's, it's full of energy and hope and, and kind of movement in one sense, but also it's a little bit perilous or there's a, a sort of ambivalence there. Um which suggests that the kind of new life that comes in spring is full of potential, but it's not a sort of sentimental way of thinking, oh yeah, you know, nice bunnies and chicks and things like that that we often maybe associate with spring. It's new life is something with a huge amount of power. Um, And then of course, when that comes, it gets tied into the Christian liturgical calendar. If you're thinking about Lent and Easter and that as a time of also of kind of new life and of liberation and of power of something, you know, hugely powerful, the most powerful event in human history is Christ you know, rising from the dead and breaking the imprisonment of his own tomb. And if that's imagined, as it often is in the Anglo-Saxon poems, as a kind of parallel to breaking the imprisonment of winter um, for the new life of spring, that's not sentimental at all. It's something absolutely earth shattering and, um, and and kind of monumental and, and kind of awe inspiring as much as it is just like, you know, pleasant. <laughs> so it's quite a complex and, and nuanced sense they have of spring, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And I loved that. And you had a, a section in the book which was talking about specifically that where you were highlighting like floods and even like the comparison with in Beowulf where they, yeah. they move from from the, 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 the frozen to the thawing, which is this like gush of water and then blood with the different uh, battle with Grendel's mother, the monster's mother that like that tying that in, like you said, with the religious aspect. And I hadn't even really thought about it before, but those Old Testament stories of both Noah and then also the Red Sea, that this combination of water and blood as a a, a gushing forth, again, from the side of Jesus on the cross, that there, there is this both kind of 
slightly threatening, like you said, <laughs> like like a gush of blood coming out, but also water that's very generative. And then that beautiful Anglo-Saxon idea of the the cross as a tree, and then after Easter as a tree that's in bloom, that it's life giving, that it, it is full of life. That yeah, that it's very. I'm always amazed at the ways that the Anglo-Saxon imagination was able to weave in all of these different things at the one time and build on Old Testament imagery and their own kind of historical folkloric story imagery and their own image of Christ and 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 then the world around them that all of these things can get layered together to produce these really kind of very moving images for me. Mm. Yeah, I think Beowulf is a really good example of that because, I mean, uh, you know, like you say, I talk about that moment in the book where, in, in Beowulf, where, um, you know, Beowulf is killing Grendel's mother, he's slaying the monster, um, and it's paralleled by the poet to the liberation that comes with spring to the moment where, you know, the, the fetters of frost are um, melt and, and um, life kind of gushes forth like a, a, fl- a flood of blood or something. And there are a number of moments in Beowulf where, you know, on the one hand, it's a story about a hero killing monsters and it's coming from the Germanic past and it's coming from, you know, very much a kind of Anglo-Saxon sensibility in one sense. But at the same time, the poet is really interested in the idea of the seasons as illustrating God's power um, over the world, which is so immensely more powerful than anything human beings can conceive, or even mighty people, mighty heroes like Beowulf, are seem you know seem really powerless compared to the power of God. So that idea of the seasons as something which we try and understand, and which we certainly do experience, but which actually we have no control over, is something that the poet of Beowulf seems to have been quite interested in. Um, and I like that emphasis on the power of the seasons, on that sense that they shape our world, but we effectively have no control over them whatsoever. Um, it's a nice reminder of, of kind of our place in the universe, I suppose, in, in this kind of order of creation that um, we're just subject to the changes of the seasons and we we have to, you know, deal with that as best we can. Yeah, and I think it's also kind of apparent in the ways that you, you highlighted how carefully and how much effort went into not controlling the seasons, but even measuring them, that mm. like there was such a, a, a kind of, even before the Anglo-Saxon period, of course, but like figuring out the date of, of Easter being this big kind of contentious and, and difficult task. And that, you know, we, we take it for granted now. We look at our phone, it tells us the date, it tells us the time. Mm-hmm. And like all of these things are very straightforward. Anyone can look up like the phase of the moon. Like it's, it's kind of, it, the information is less kind of needed in some ways. We don't need to know when the, especially most of us will not be engaged in agriculture or any of those things that like it's less pressing on our day to day and yet it's more available to us than ever. Um, but that there's such a, a careful wish to understand how the seasons are moving and measuring them in different ways. And then also tying that in with the, the liturgical calendar and seeing how, you know, if you're imagining it from a medieval point of view, you're imagining the world as very embodied as a, as a creation of God, that everything is within God's power. And so everything should make sense and be ordered and have this deeper meaning. And I really loved the section that you have on explaining why the actually why Christmas is at Christmas, but it's why the the twenty fifth of March is so important as the day th- of the of the Annunciation and of Good Friday. Mm. 
Yeah, so this is a, a, a tradition that, I mean, the medieval calendar nerds spent um, a lot of time <laughs> thinking about this. And yeah, trying to think about, um, so, you, I mean, they could identify what the historical date of the crucifixion was, independent of when Easter is celebrated, which, as you say, was a whole other controversy on its own, that if they could identify the, the actual date on which Christ died, what was the significance of that date? Um, and so the way someone like Bede thinks about it is that date is tied uh, to the date of the Annunciation, um, March the 25th, and also to the date of the spring equinox and also to the date on which time itself was created way back at the beginning of time. Because, you know, they, they absolutely think of time as something that came into the world through God's creation, like everything else. God created the sun and the moon. And when he did that, he created time and the measurement of time. And so the way someone like Bede thinks about it is, well, yeah, you can work out particular dates for these things, because, of course, human reason can start to, you know, God has put this, given us the ability to reason these things out. So we should try and work out um, what the beginning, what the first date in time was, when time began, and then, you know, um, when when Christ died and when the Annunciation was and all those kinds of things. Um, so it's not just like they're picking random dates in the year and like, oh, that'll do to celebrate that. You know, we'll celebrate the Annunciation on March 25th. That's as good as any other date. There's a meaning behind it. And they see it as revealing something about the meaning that God has kind of written into the universe because he is the one who ultimately is the source of time itself and and of the cycles of time and nature um the cycles of the sun and the moon and the seasons they're all created by god and so it from their point of view there's something to be understood about that it's something we ought to try and understand if we possibly can yeah and of course the the point of it being the same day is that he enters on the yeah. same day that he leaves and so it's it, it is a, a circle and so you have this kind of eternal and but also closed quality to to his his life on earth mm. but yeah and I think I remember you actually had in your blog we were lucky enough again it feels like such a shame I don't think enough of a fuss was made about it was it one or two two years ago when we actually had the annunciation on scene something like that yeah, that we had this 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 date, which I'm sure in a medieval time would have been. Would have it's been actually really exciting. It would have been the biggest festival, I can imagine, just that that it actually comes together on the calendar. And I think you were sort of pointing out that now it's just seen as like, oh, then we'll need to move the celebration of the Annunciation to another day, or like, uh, in some ways, seen as an inconvenience. And you were actually to call back to our our discussion just earlier about. The, the way that kind of some secular versions of the world have kind of limited our ways in which we express ourselves, that that discussion of fixing Easter to a specific date to, I guess, make something easier. I'm not, I'm not quite sure what. <laughs> but that, yeah, it's inconvenient for people to have Easter on a different day every year. And that like that actually, if we're looking at it from a medieval point of view, there is a, a much deeper sense of, of integration, that this is something that actually gives us meaning and gives us, yeah, a deeper understanding of the world that we're in, not just an annoyance because it has to, it's a little bit inconvenient or that it doesn't fit with our usual yearly expectations. Yeah, some sense that because the most important thing about Easter is when schools are off or something, you have to pick a particular date and that makes it all more convenient. Um, and the strange thing about that particular discussion was it seemed like quite a lot of um 
you know, figures in the church hierarchy were also totally fine with the idea of a fixed date for Easter. You know, the, like, <laughs> so if the church isn't defending um, the importance of these dates, it's it's kind of hard to see who who will really. And yeah, I mean, something like the transference of liturgical feasts. This is also something that affects, say, you know, Epiphany, which is a, a, mm. a feast now um, in lots of places. You do lose those quite carefully planned sense of oh, it's twelve days of Christmas. You have Christmas, then twelve days, and then Epiphany, which was the way it was for hundreds and hundreds of years, and now Epiphany can be on lots of different days um and i mean there are obviously things to be said for for doing things in that way and it does make things more convenient um but it does um suggest that we don't have a full understanding of why these dates were formulated in the first place you know it's not random it was all planned with very careful consideration and with a purpose um and with some meaning behind it and not just thinking about what's most convenient or, or kind of what fits in with the secular patterns of life but suggesting there's something about time itself which from a christian point of view is sacred because it's a creation of God. And so to live through time is to, to kind of contact or to, to be in touch with that, that sort of sacredness. And so there's a value in trying to preserve it and at least understand why it was done in the first place. And I also wonder, does it also feed into the kind of conception of medieval religiosity as arbitrary mm-hmm. and superstitious and, as many people would say now, nonsensical, but like, I don't think people appreciate the real kind of scientific and deliberate and educated approaches they had to all aspects of the year, that it wasn't as as much as these are deciding on when liturgical things should happen, that they were also informed by cycles of the moon, that they were informed by equinoxes and by the length of the day and how much work it would have taken to to work out all of these things and drawing from you know sources from the middle east to tell them when passover was supposed to be and like why that's different for for christians and then like drawing on all of these kind of strands of information that you know when you think of it from a medieval point of view would have been quite difficult to gather all of that information together and yet it was so important to them that this was actually an exercise in knowledge in reason in kind of scientific thinking even when it's applied to something like a liturgical calendar. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. It is, it is scientific thinking. Um, and it's it takes a huge amount of thought, a lot of argument, a lot of debate and discussion. Um, and I think we often have quite um, sort of simplistic and, and sort of stereotyped ideas of why church festivals often coincide with the solstice or the equinox or whatever. You know, the story you usually get is, well, it was just, they stole it from the pagans, you know, and that would make yeah. people think, oh yeah, we'll stick Christmas on the winter solstice and that will sort of trick people into celebrating Christmas because they won't notice that it's changed or something. And it's much, much more complicated than that. And I mean, especially with the date of Easter, people have all these kind of rather fanciful ideas about, oh, it was stolen from the pagan spring equinox festival, whatever. But the reason that Easter's tied to the spring equinox doesn't have anything to do with pagans. It's to do with the date of Passover, you know, like you're saying, and that really complex relationship um, in the early church between its kind of Jewish heritage and the understanding of the Jewish calendar and how that feeds into a Christian version of that or a Christian adaptation of that, which is also taking in influences from other parts of the world, from Roman calendars and so on. It's a very complex story. And I think we've just massively underestimate how much thought went into these kinds of decisions and how carefully they were made. Um, it wasn't sort of a knee-jerk you know, just an attempt to kind of claim power from the pagans or something much, much more complicated than that. Yeah, there's a real sense that people want to almost read it as a 
a smash and grab kind of yeah. <laughs> attitude, which it's not that there's no, it's not at all that there's no value in seeing where pagan hmm. elements were tied or or celebrated in different ways. Mm. But it is so overly simplistic to suggest, like you said, that it was just a case of saying, well, we'll take that now and we'll call it Christian festival instead, um, that there was something much more mature going on, which is to say that, that, and also I think it's even that that thing that Tolkien talks about, which is the way that Christ kind of came to people over time and that, you know, from a a medieval point of view, it was more about reordering things back towards Christ. Now that revelation had been given to them rather than saying, oh, well, we just want to keep our party. So we'll just call it whatever you want. There's a sense in which it kind of denies the genuine religiosity of the people of the time that it wasn't just, oh, we don't care what you call it. We just want to have our get together, that there was much more going on in terms of how they were understanding the world and how this gave people a real sense of meaning and purpose in this in the space that they're in. Mm. Yeah, I think we so often, you know, the narrative is that, is that it's about power. It's about the church trying to exert its power or something like that. And actually, it's much more complex than that, because it's not just a, a question of, oh, the church makes a decision and then everyone else kind of falls in line. You've got a situation in which new forms of Christianity are embedding themselves in lots of different cultures. And they do that in all kinds of different ways. I mean, obviously, I'm talking about the Anglo-Saxon, about Anglo-Saxon England, where you get a certain version of the Christian calendar, which is drawing ultimately on, okay, so through Roman influence, it's drawing on Jewish influence, and there's also a kind of Irish influence, and there's whatever is in, existing in pre-Christian Anglo-Saxon culture to kind of take into um, to, to the, the equation. Um, and yeah, there's this sense of, of kind of making something new out of all of these different elements, which becomes a particular expression of the Christian calendar that works within a particular place, a particular climate, particular agricultural cycles, um, which are very much, uh, you know, kind of localized as well. It's not a, a kind of monolithic picture of like, well, there's this is Christianity. This is what medieval Christianity was like. It's one thing. Actually, it's quite a diverse picture. And different versions of the Christian calendar emerge in different parts of the Christian world because these cultures are producing or are kind of coming up with calendars that make sense for them, that work for them, that produce meaning for the whole society and not just sort of a bunch of clerics kind of saying, okay, no, we do this feast now, um, whatever you call it, we're going to have we're gonna have it on this day. It's much more kind of a process of negotiation, I think, and and sort of something that's, that's meant to to kind of work for the society as a whole. Yeah, and that there is a sense in which it can be both universal and specific, mm. like you're saying that, you know, all of the church is going through, um, let's say Easter, I you know, like if we're, we're talking about our Orthodox brothers and sisters and, and, and there <laughs> there is changes in that, but that in general, there is a sense of like Christmas is happening for everyone or this is happening. And yet within that, you can have personal expressions of faith, you can have like localized traditions you can have you know things in Ireland that are specifically Irish you can have things in England that are specifically English and across Europe and and anywhere really that you know it can express itself in different ways and so that it speaks to a particular community and yet also speaks broadly to something that is happening across large parts of 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 space and time that 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 these are all actually uniting in some way and i think that's really 
something beautiful and yeah that that it is really kind of fascinating to see all of the different small traditions like I loved you had a, a reference to locking up the alleluia that, oh, yeah. we used to, that there were some communities that did like a burial rite for the alleluia at the start of Lent that that's such a fun interesting idea and that like whereas in Ireland you know where this episode will come out at the start of February we have a slightly different conception like our springtime begins on February 1st, which I think is kind of unusual for some people that, that like we are in spring because the Irish calendar kind of preempts the season. It doesn't begin when it's in full swing. It's kind of more like it starts at the very beginning and then you kind of get the climax in the middle and then the like, so it sort of does a peak and a trough, which is is informative in its own way. Mm. And a bit like you, you have a great section in the book all about the different names of the, the months. And I always think it's so funny in Irish, there's no getting away from it. September is called middle of autumn. October <laughs> is called end of autumn. <laughs> <laughs> it's man for and dera for, and you can't change. <laughs> but also that, like we were saying that there's, this great thing of the medieval conception that is very uplifting because it's integrated and yes we have left behind some of that scientific understanding because we have developed um i I, i've mentioned c.s lewis already he talks wonderfully about how we did have to let go of the kind of earth-centric view of the heavens Mm. but that there was still something worthwhile in that way of understanding the heavens and that there's something at the very least on a human and emotional level that is actually kind of beautiful about looking up to the heavens as something that you're at the center of rather than kind of floating in a in an endless space i love that quote he has about the motions of the universe are to be conceived not as those of a machine or even an army but rather as a dance mm-hmm. a festival a symphony a ritual a carnival or all of these things in one they are the unimpeded movement of the most perfect impulse towards the most perfect object and like that really ties in with seeing the cosmos itself as a feast day or as a festival that like this is how important it is to our experience of the world to to engage with these feasts and festivals and and on the flip side fasting and penance and and the the, to have both as well Mm. yeah I really I mean that that's lovely and I I think the way one of the things that I really like about some of the ways Anglo-Saxon poems talk about time is they kind of imagine the year as on this journey itself. I mean, the, the reason I use the word journey in the title of the book is because they talk about the journey of the year, that the months are on a journey. They kind of they sweep into human the human world and then they sweep out again or they glide in and they glide out or whatever. And so it's like everything is in motion and yet it's not a random motion. It's something very orderly. One thing follows another in its proper progression and it is like a dance or a kind of a procession or something um and so what the way they're thinking about you know for, for instance the movement of the planets and the movement of time all of these things kind of um echo each other yeah absolutely and i loved how you described there's you you reference a lot of different texts and poems but there is two that really stick out the the menologium and maxims too but you call the menologium a calendar in verse mm-hmm. and time turned into poetry which is such a lovely way of describing those poems but also describing an approach to the year that it was such a it's a beautiful work which takes the whole year and weaves in all of the different kind of seasons and solstices and equinoxes and all of those things but it isn't just 
a list of dates or a list of calculations. It is actually a poem that brings you through the essence of each of those seasons and festivals and and the 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 ways that they understood it. I just think it's so beautiful. Yeah, I think it's beautiful too. And Anglo-Saxonists don't value this poem at all. <laughs> this is, I mean, <laughs> this poem was in some ways like the germ of the whole book because I think it is absolutely beautiful to imagine the passage of time in poetry in that way. But it's a poem which has been absolutely kind of not regarded at all by specialists because they see it as just like, oh, it's just a, yeah, a list of dates or very kind of conventional poem. Or it's just echoing lots of cliches from other poems. But what it actually offers as a picture of the year, as a kind of a holistic cycle, um, is something which gives us a really interesting insight into how people were thinking about time and experiencing time and the kinds of language that they were using for it. Um, so I think it's, it's kind of really underrated and, um, and, and a lovely, it, it offers a lovely way of thinking about the cycle of the year. Yeah. And I think the other one that I really loved, and I know we're maybe at the wrong time of year, you have to come the whole way around again, but I love your, yeah, the way you talk about the, the O antiphons and the way that the Anglo-Saxons wrote these kind of extended poems about them. And so as, mm. as you say in the book, the, the way that most people know the, the great advent O antiphons is from O come, O come, Emmanuel. So if you just take, take that, that hymn and break it down, those are, the, those are the O antiphons, but they, they appear in different ways in the church, but that the Anglo-Saxons took those basic kind of titles of Jesus that are are given in that hymn, Key of David, Day Spring, Emmanuel, all of those ones, and then extended it and built on that old uh, Old Testament tradition, and also brought in all of their own their own poetic background to create these really beautiful liturgical poems that are specifically Anglo-Saxon and also specifically liturgical. And yeah, that they were just so sophisticated in the way that they did that. Mm. Yeah, it's absolutely an example of these different traditions um, kind of coming together and, and producing something really beautiful as the result of a, a mixture and a melding and, an, you know, one tradition taking inspiration from another. It's a kind of mutual flourishing kind of thing um, because, you know, on the one hand, they're absolutely kind of quoting scripture and they're turning um, passages from the Old Testament into Old English poetry, which is not an easy thing to do, but a very interesting thing to do. Um, but at the same time, they're doing things like instead of oh, Orion's, um, the you know, the day star, like what is it in the um, yeah day spring, isn't it in the Come and Come Emmanuel? Um, they're using the name Aerendel, which is a name for the dawn or for the morning star or something, which probably comes from ultimately from Anglo-Saxon paganism. Um, and it produces this absolutely beautiful poem, which is drawing on these really deep roots of the Anglo-Saxon understanding of the sun or the stars or whatever you know is kind of whatever comes, whatever is the first light of dawn, effectively, is what it means but also drawing on, on the liturgical antiphon. Um, so it produces this absolutely extraordinary poem. Um, and it, it was one of the poems that particularly influenced Tolkien, as you probably know, yeah. because Arendel is a word that sort of it like gave him a, almost like a mystical experience when he read that poem as a young man. And he borrowed the name and he took it into his own mythology as a, um, a star name and a really important character. Um, and it does, it has this extraordinary power, that poem. And I think that power comes from the fact that it's drawing on all these deep wells of inspiration and producing something new out of all of those disparate materials. Yeah, I think that's so spot on that it's when we pull together all of these different strands that we really get something that is like speaks to the heart of people and that can inspire someone like Tolkien so many hundred years later that like not only is it 
an, a, a great artistic achievement in its own right, but then goes on and inspires and continues to speak to people in different ways that, yeah, that it's just so exciting to see that. And I don't know if, if there are any parts of any of those poems, maybe the menologium or the, the maxims, if that, that you wanted to make sure people noticed or that you particularly loved. I think the one I, I always come back to is actually the one that gave me the title for the book, which is a line from The Wanderer, um, the, the old English elegy, The Wanderer. And it's uh, it's about this phrase, winters in the world, which is a, just a poetic convention, a way of saying years. You know, it's about talking about the years that a person has lived. You know, you've lived 30 winters in the world or whatever. Um, it's a nice kind of way of talking about that. But the, the line in, in The Wanderer is that a man cannot become wise before he has had his share of winters in the world. And the sense there is obviously that winter is not just a way of thinking about time, but also seasons of, of suffering in our lives, you know, seasons of deprivation, winter in its more kind of negative sense of something that you have to endure in order to get through and get to the spring. And, you know, the poem suggesting everybody has those seasons in their lives. We all have a share of winters in the world that we all have to live through. That's individual to us, just like our tally of years in our age is, is individual to us. But through that, you become wise. So it's not suffering without purpose. It's something, it's a kind of experience that can teach you. If you live through these many, many seasons, some of them will be good, some of them will be less good. But ultimately, there's a kind of wisdom to be found through that experience of living through time um, and through its different seasons and these different experiences. Somehow, wisdom will be found through all of that. Um, I think that's probably my favorite, that's one of my favorite lines in Old English poetry, generally, I think. So. <laughs> That's brilliant. I really loved even it's funny how one of the reasons I love Anglo-Saxon literature and history is that actually going back to the etymology really, for me anyway, just gives you such a fresh way of understanding the connections between the world and how, how we can understand things. I really loved how actually in the Rogation Tide section that we mentioned earlier, you were talking about just the word how, because you said on these sort of penitential processions you 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 point out that as penance purifies the soul the processions cleanse and make holy the physical world they are healing and hallowing and they promote community wholeness three ideas which go back to the same old english root hal meaning healthy sound whole etymologically speaking to heal to hallow are both to make whole and so that these rogation days seek physical and spiritual health for the individual, the community and the natural world, that they're all connected in one harmonious whole, that there is this actual way that all of these things are working together in this one small three-letter word, hell, that, that tells us that blessing and physical health and spiritual health and the health of the landscape are all about trying to become this whole thing, this this integrated, this complete, this, you know, unfallen thing in some ways that that, that we're striving for a sense of wholeness in all of it. Um, and yeah, that like to see the year as a whole is to, like you said, with these winters in the world, to see the sufferings as part of it coming in and out. But that then there are also seasons, seasons of summer and then seasons of harvest, which I think you had a great point about how, like you said, that they don't really have this, <laughs> again, speaking of very commercialized things, uh, that one of the episodes we did last year was on the sort of conception of autumn as this now sort of like very... Um, packaged thing that oh, people yeah. sort of smell. <laughs> um, which was not in the Anglo-Saxon <laughs> conception at all 
but that when you have your harvest, you're reaping your rewards. And so that there's lessons to be learned from Our Lady and her assumption into heaven and the reaping of rewards that, yeah, that we can have all of these different seasons in the year that have their place. And suffering is part of those. The winters in the world are certainly part of those. In fact, they, as you pointed out, they, they, they compose of a large... They not the greatest <laughs> of anglo-saxon poetry and yet there is space for mm. for more light as well and that like the the o antiphons that we were mentioning you point out are sung at the darkest time of the year and speak to the hope of the light to come that we can stand at midwinter and say come emmanuel come light come hope come peace that these are things that we can with the seasons expect that there will be a season of light to come after darkness mm. Yeah, I think absolutely. And and there's this sense that these kinds of experiences can also correspond to seasons in our own lives. So, you know, we will have winters or times in our lives that feel like winter, but also times that feel like spring and summer and harvest, you know. And and one of the poems I talk about is uh, it's called The Rhyming Poem. And it, it kind of maps the seasons onto an individual's life. You know, he talks about his youth as like a time of springtime and beginning and hope and energy and, and all of that. And then he moves into a summer and a harvest, a time of kind of settled prosperity and success and, um, you know, feeling kind of like he's fixed and, and secure in the world. But then he declines into a kind of autumn and, and a winter as well. Um, so all of these things they correlate to our experiences um, in lots of different ways you know not actually just literally in terms of living through the cycle of the year but also in our own understanding of seasons of you know deprivation or plenty or times of hardship but also times of success and celebration whatever it might be you know you could I think they often think about these these times they very very much are um, are parts of human experience to have these seasons, but they pass, they move on to something else. There's always something else to, to come. That's wonderful. And so, yeah, I think that's why, I mean, I would recommend to all of my listeners to get the book. I think it's wonderful. I'll have it linked in the description. I think it's just, and it's a really accessible book, I think as well for people, as much as I enjoyed it from coming from a, a background of knowing a bit more about Anglo-Saxon, I felt like it was really accessible for anyone who is just coming to it fresh, that it is something that will speak to a whole host of different people. I feel like, as I mentioned, I saw it on a whole bunch of lists of like people recommending it over Christmas, that like this was something that, yeah, I think is speaking to our need for um acknowledging and entering into the seasonality of our lives and also of the year and that especially as we I think struggle to connect to the the world in some ways that like we are either we live in cities or that we're concerned about the changes in the climate or the way that we're um uh, we're treating the world that there are all these kinds of tense feelings about the world around us and that re-entering the seasons is some way to reclaim our relationship both with creation and then you know from a Christian point of view reclaim that relationship with our creator as well that these are all part of of the the, the great scheme of creation that that medieval idea of a very Im- embodied and integrated creation that God is working through that is planned and loved into being and understood and yeah and should be cherished by us Mm. yeah I think there's there's very much this sense of 
this is something that we can rediscover you know it's all there it's all out there um and yeah. you know accessing some understanding of of what happens through the cycle of the seasons is as simple in a way of just you know looking out the window or whatever um just paying attention and i think that's what i really like about the old english poems is they pay attention they notice things they're they're thoughtful and they're attentive to um to the natural world and to how it relates to lots of different forms of human experience and i think you know we can learn to pay attention as well it's the simplest thing yeah. to, to ask and there are so many claims on our attention, so many things which attempt to distract us. But being yeah. able to to kind of have a sort of mindful focus on the seasons can be really fruitful, I think. And in some ways, maybe they had such insight because perhaps they had less distractions. <laughs> they were, the natural world was much more immediate to yeah. them. There were there weren't any barriers between them in it in, in the same way. But yeah, I think that that that's wonderful. So, um, like I said, I will certainly be. Um, linking the book down below. I also want to give a shout out. You also released another book last year, Conquered the Last Children of Anglo-Saxon England, which I believe is a more his strictly historical book. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. That's about the generation of English children who uh, lived through the Norman conquest and then kind of grew up in its aftermath. Um, so, you know, looking at what happened to them and, and how their stories were remembered. In some ways, it kind of, the end of your book leaves off at the end, like yeah. at the Norman conquest. So it, it, <laughs> it's not equal, but you can, you can see it that way. Um, so yeah, well, uh, the, I'll definitely link that as well. And so I think I just have one last question to ask you, um, which is, uh, what are you enjoying at the moment? <laughs> well, this does actually kind of relate to, I mean, I don't want to suggest that I'm just obsessed with the seasons, but this does relate. Um, so what I've been mostly doing over Christmas was uh, rereading The Lord of the Rings, which I haven't reread for a few years. Um, and I really was very struck by just how important the seasons are in the early especially the early part you know Tolkien was clearly very careful about making it run from the um, the autumnal equinox in September up to March 25th which is the date of the destruction of the ring you know we were talking about how important that date is in in medieval culture and he clearly thought a lot about that so I've been sort of reading the book and really enjoying that aspect of it um, for the first time really. I'm so glad you said that. Listeners know that I am always talking about, especially whenever September comes around, it's like <laughs> a strong temptation to just open the Fellowship of the Ring back again. <laughs> um, and, you know, like you said, even the fact that I think they leave Rivendell on Christmas yeah, Day. Yeah, yeah. call it Christmas Day. But yeah, that there's, yeah, he, he is such care of of when things are happening it is again he's very integrated in the way he's like carefully plotting everything out everything has a meaning everything has a, a greater understanding um in a similar way i, I think the thing i was going to recommend is i just finished uh, a collection of wh auden's longer poems which included his uh poem for the time being which is his christmas oratorio which again has a wonderful section about um the time after Christmas and like how we put away our better expectations of ourselves and see how we failed and see how we, we didn't really live up to our, our hopes and how we were impatient with our relatives and all of those things. But just, yeah, I, th I, I found it really beautiful. We mentioned, I think we mentioned the Advent section in the, uh, in the episode just at Christmas, but I, I, I was reading the whole poem again. And then he has another one for, for New Year's as well. So I was like, okay, it's the time of year. I better, right. <laughs> I better read it. And so I recommend those. Um, and other than that, I guess, is there any, Anything you want to shout out other than the books? Um, obviously, if any of our listeners are on Twitter, they should follow you, Clerk of Oxford. Is there anything else you want to shout out? Nope, I think that's it. Just, yeah, come find me on Twitter. <laughs> 
great. Uh, and thanks very much for listening. I'm delighted to be back for the year and we'll look forward to the next episode soon. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless. Thank you.